0: My name is Inga Winkler. I'm an associate professor of international human rights law at the Central European University in Vienna, Austria. And relevant for the purpose of this lecture, I used to be the legal advisor to the UN Special Rapporteur on the human rights to safe drinking water and sanitation. And before that, I completed my PhD on the right to water. I draw on these experiences to shed some light on the human rights to water and sanitation. The human right to water has gained increasing recognition over the last 20 years, and so has the right to sanitation. By now, it is well acknowledged that they are part of the body of international human rights law. In my lecture, I will trace the process of recognition of the human rights to water and sanitation and discuss their status under international human rights law. I will present how these rights have been defined, discuss their normative content, and outline the corresponding obligations to realize these rights. Finally, I'll examine the implications of the human rights to water and sanitation for law, policy, and practice. You might be surprised to hear that the rights to water and sanitation are not explicitly mentioned anywhere in the International Bill of Rights. Neither the Universal Declaration of Human Rights nor the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights or in short, the social covenant, make reference to water and sanitation. Even though many would argue that water and sanitation are just as fundamental as food, housing, health, and many other human rights. When these instruments were drafted, water might have been considered as basic as the air to breathe, with no need to address it explicitly. Sanitation, on the other hand, has long been neglected because no one wants to talk about it, and we look into that some more. The discussions around the right to water gained momentum in the late 1990s. This was supported by a general trend of increasing attention to economic and social rights after the end of the Cold War. It was also linked to tensions around private sector participation in the provision of water services in many countries. These mobilize civil society, and broad water issues to the fore. Even though the human right to water does not entirely rule out private sector participation, and the two questions should be considered separately, they have been linked in mobilization efforts. This process of recognition is so interesting because it presents an example of how international law develops through interpretation, and how legal and political dimensions expert opinion and activist efforts come together in the process. As a result of the increasing attention, the Committee on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights, which is the UN treaty body responsible for monitoring the implementation of the Social Covenant, issued its General Comment number no. 15 on the right to water in late 2002. The General Comment defined the right to water as the right, and I quote, To sufficient, safe, acceptable, physically accessible, and affordable water for personal and domestic uses. The general comment argued that the right to water is essential for securing an adequate standard of living and that it is also related to the right to the highest attainable standard of health and also the rights to adequate housing and food. This general comment is a statement by experts, providing an authoritative interpretation of the social covenant. And it also proved to provide an impetus for further developments at the political level, not only on water, but then also on sanitation. In 2008, the Human Rights Council created a special procedures mandate on water and sanitation. And Katharina de Albuquerque, as the first mandate holder, took up her functions as independent expert on the issue of human rights obligations related to access to safe drinking water and sanitation. The mandate title is not only a mouthful, but it also indicates that at the time, there was not yet political agreement on the status of the human rights to water and sanitation. However, in the summer of 2010, Bolivia introduced a resolution in the UN General Assembly that led to the political recognition of the right to safe and clean drinking water and sanitation as a human right that is essential for the enjoyment of life and all human rights. This resolution was not adopted by consensus, and many states abstained from voting. But later in 2010, the Human Rights Council affirmed the human right to water and sanitation in a resolution, this time adopted by consensus. At the political level, these resolutions brought the breakthrough for the political recognition of the human right to water and sanitation. They also brought increasing attention to the human rights to water and sanitation, which is, for instance, reflected in the sustainable development agenda. Water and sanitation are among the few rights that are explicitly named in the political declaration. While these resolutions of great political significance, They are political documents, not legal ones. However, the Human Rights Council resolution stresses, again I quote, the human right to safe drinking water and sanitation is derived from the right to an adequate standard of living, end quote. Article 11 of the Social Covenant provides a broad guarantee of the human right to an adequate standard of living. It mentions several components, including food and housing, and uses an open formulation that leaves room for other unnamed components. Indeed, an adequate standard of living cannot be realized without access to water and sanitation. The human rights to water and sanitation are therefore to be understood as implicit components of the human right to an adequate standard of living. And more recent human rights treaties, in particular the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, support this interpretation. Article 14 of CEDAW explicitly lists sanitation and water as components necessary for adequate living conditions. Apart from being an implicit component of the right to an adequate standard of living, the rights to sanitation and water are linked to a range of other human rights. Access to safe water and sanitation is one of the main underlying determinants of the right to health, and water and sanitation are also linked to the right to housing, the right to life, and many other human rights. What we can see here is how activists and advocates have raised awareness around water and sanitation issues, how the Committee on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights and the Special Rapporteur on Water and Sanitation have contributed through their expertise, how this has found reflection and political recognition in UN resolutions, and how all this taken together has solidified the interpretation and development of international human rights law to include water and sanitation as human rights. In 2015, states took the additional step to recognize sanitation and water as two distinct rights that are interlinked, but also distinct from each other. Why does that matter? To begin with, I think it's fair to say that sanitation would never have been recognized as a human rights on its own. It benefited from being linked to the right to water. Many have said that it piggybacked on the increasing recognition of the importance of water. Yet in comparison with water, sanitation has received and continues to receive much less attention. And in practical terms, progress on access to sanitation is lagging behind. Overall, there's a lack of policies, strategies, financing, and other measures to improve access to sanitation. So, at this stage, recognizing sanitation as a right of its own and delinking it from water can be an advantage. Sanitation is more than an add-on. It has distinct characteristics that warrant its understanding as a distinct human right in order to address specific challenges in its implementation, both in technical terms as well as in terms of enabling people to change behavior around sanitation. This recognition was then also reflected in the special procedures mandate the one that originally held the unwieldy title and is now named Special Rapporteur on the Human Rights to Safe Drinking Water and Sanitation. So what do these rights guarantee? What do they mean? The resolution by the Human Rights Council specifies that the right to water entitles everyone without discrimination to have access to sufficient, safe, acceptable, physically accessible, and affordable water for personal and domestic use. As for the right to sanitation, it entitles everyone to have physical and affordable access to sanitation in all spheres of life that is safe, hygienic, secure, and acceptable, and that provides privacy and ensures dignity. Using this definition, which is based on the work of the Committee on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights and the Special Rapporteur. The content of the rights to water and sanitation can be determined by five criteria that I'll uh, I'll address in turn. That's availability, accessibility, affordability, safety, and acceptability. First, water must be available to everyone in sufficient quantities to satisfy personal and domestic needs. This includes water for drinking, as well as for personal and household needs including bathing, washing, and cleaning. Specific requirements vary due to climatic conditions, individual health, age, and other factors. And the human rights framework stresses the need to accommodate and meet individual requirements. Still, international recommendations on water quantity can provide broad guidance. The World Health Organization estimates that under most circumstances, domestic needs, can be met without health risk with a daily amount of about 100 liters per person. While lower quantities are sometimes suggested, these fail to guarantee personal and household needs, compromise human health, and thus cannot be understood as fully meeting the requirements under the human right to water. As I said, the human right to water covers water for personal and domestic uses, such as drinking, bathing, washing, cleaning, However, water is not only used for personal and domestic uses, but also many other uses, including water, uh, food production through agriculture and food processing, industrial purposes, power generation, and at a smaller scale, cultural and religious activities. At a global scale, around 70% of global water use occurs in the agricultural sector, around 20% in the industrial sector, and less than 10% is actually used in households. These other water uses are not covered by the right to water itself, but they relate to other human rights. The right to food cannot be realized without water in sufficient quantities. The right to work of many individuals is dependent on economic development, which in turn requires water, for instance, for small-scale livelihood activities. Religious and cultural practices, including of indigenous peoples, which require access to water, are also protected by human rights. And turning to sanitation, facilities must also be available within each household or its immediate vicinity. They must be available on a reliable and continuous basis. In order to meet requirements throughout the day and night, sanitation facilities must be available wherever people spend significant amounts of time. This includes health and educational institutions, public institutions and places, the workplace, and prisons and other detention facilities. Where sanitation facilities are shared, including at work or in public institutions, there must be a sufficient number of facilities to avoid unreasonably long waiting times. And this implies a larger number of facilities to be used by women. Second, turning to accessibility, Water and sanitation services must be accessible to all users on a reliable and continuous basis. Again, this criterion stresses the need to meet individual requirements, including of persons with disabilities, older persons, children, people with health conditions, pregnant people, among many others. For instance, the entrance to sanitation facilities, the interior space, support mechanisms such as handrails, the position of defecation and other aspects must be designed to accommodate all people and their particular needs. The location of facilities is also cru- crucial in ensuring the physical security of users. Third, water and sanitation services must be affordable, which is often overlooked in current policy making and tariff setting. All too often, the assumption is that people will somehow pay for water and sanitation. And given that water is essential for human survival and health, people will go to great lengths to pay for it. The human rights framework does not generally require that water and sanitation services are provided free of charge. Yet it does require that services are affordable. People must not be put in a position where they compromise the realization of other human rights, including health, housing, education, or food, in order to pay for sanitation and water services. In this regard, the Human Rights Framework stipulates important parameters for designing tariff schemes and ensuring both social and financial sustainability, for instance, by using cross-subsidies. Fourth, quality and safety are essential for ensuring human health. Water must not pose a threat to human health. And the WHO guidelines for drinking water quality specify that safe drinking water must not represent any significant risk to health over a lifetime of consumption, including different sensitivities that may occur between life stages. The, guideline determines limit... the guidelines determine limits for a large number of substances that may be harmful. And lead and arsenic in water are two such substances that have pers- received significant attention for the harm they've been causing. Water quality issues also show how water and sanitation are interlinked. Adequate sanitation and wastewater management and treatment are essential for ensuring water quality. Where sewage is not adequately treated, it may contaminate large quantities of fresh water. And where on-site sanitation facilities are not adequately managed, where pits overflow, where contents of septic tanks leak into groundwater, or where pits are emptied but their contents are dumped into the environment, this leads to pollution of water sources and may contaminate people's drinking water. Therefore, the human right to sanitation requires that facilities are hygienically safe to use and easy to clean. They must effectively prevent contact with human excreta. Sanitation entails the treatment and safe disposal or reuse of feces, urine and associated wastewater. For waterborne sanitation, this implies the need for sewage treatment so that people and the environment are not negatively affected by wastewater. Where on-site sanitation solutions are used, pits and septic tanks are required to be constructed in a way that prevents leakage and overflow, as well as regulation, support, monitoring and oversight to ensure that contents are adequately collected and disposed of. Fifth, and finally, social and cultural acceptability are important considerations, in particular for sanitation. What is acceptable may vary across societies and cultures, and it may also change over time. Therefore, the design, positioning, and conditions for use must be tailored to the differing perspectives about which sanitation solutions are acceptable. All gender bathrooms can be a good solution to accommodate the needs of trans, non-binary, and gender non-conforming people. Facilities should also accommodate acceptable hygiene practices in specific cultures, such as anal and genital cleansing, and women's and girls' toilets must accommodate menstrual needs. These normative criteria are important, but by themselves, they are just that, criteria or standards. Importantly, the human rights framework links rights with obligations. States are the primary duty bearers and have the obligation to realize these human rights. State obligations are commonly described as obligations to respect, to protect, and to fulfill. The obligation to respect requires states to refrain from action that will unjustifiably interfere with their enjoyment. This obligation is of immediate effect. It means that states must not interfere with access to water and sanitation, for instance, through unjustifiable disconnections. And they must not pollute, divert, or deplete water resources that households rely on. Not only states, but also non-state actors may have a significant impact on the realization of human rights. In this regard, the obligation to protect requires states to enact and enforce necessary protections of the rights to water and sanitation, to protect individuals from human rights abuses by third parties. Among other measures, states must put in place adequate regulatory measures to ensure that third parties do not exploit water resources to the extent that it would cause deprivation or harm to individuals. Likewise, states must develop and enforce regulations to protect people from water contamination. Non-state actors, including private actors, may also contribute to the realization of human rights. And for water and sanitation, this is particularly relevant in the context of service provision. Where private actors are involved in the provision of water and sanitation services, their role comes with human rights responsibilities. Finally, the obligation to fulfill requires states to adopt the necessary measures directed towards the full realization of the rights to water and sanitation. The obligation to fulfill may be the most complex obligation and the one surrounded by most misconceptions. The human rights to water and sanitation do not require states to provide services to all people directly nor do they require states to achieve their full realization immediately. Above all, the obligation to fulfill is an obligation to facilitate access and to enable people to provide for themselves. Individuals are expected to contribute to the enjoyment of their rights to water and sanitation with their own means, for instance by paying for tariffs. But states have to create the enabling environment through the adoption of legislation, policies, regulations, and programs, and creating appropriate institutions for their implementation. However, where people do not have the capacity to provide for themselves, for instance, in conditions of detention, or do not have the means to do so for reasons beyond their control, the state's obligation does turn into an obligation of direct provision. The human rights framework acknowledges that the rights to sanitation and water cannot be fully realized overnight. State obligations are obligations of progressively realizing these human rights. This means that states must move towards the goal of full realization as expeditiously and effectively as possible by taking deliberate, concrete, and targeted steps and using the maximum of their available resources. This does not leave the realization of human rights to the state's discretion, but recognizes that the full realization of human rights is a long-term process that needs to take account of resource and other constraints. These criteria and obligations create a detailed normative framework. They clearly establish what the human rights to sanitation and water mean and require. Taking a step back, when I was working with the UN Special Rapporteur on the Human Rights to Water and Sanitation, and the rights were recognized in 2010, many people reached out to us to ask whether we considered our job done. After all, that was what we had been advocating for. But no, we responded. We were just getting started. Having the explicit recognition was important at a political level, and it was important for generating momentum But what really matters is the realization and implementation of human rights for all people. We then work closely with policymakers, service providers, regulators, and others responsible for implementing the human rights to water and sanitation. And we developed a handbook on the implementation of the human rights to water and sanitation. The handbook provides detailed guidance, examples, and checklists It covers everything from integrating human rights into legal frameworks, policies, and regulations, to financing tariff structures and service provision, to monitoring and accountability. And this is where human rights are the most relevant, and informing concrete decisions on policy and practice. To integrate human rights, states must reform relevant legislation, policies, and strategies, and introduce mechanisms that protect human rights. Human rights are relevant at all levels, from local regulations and ordinances, national level policies and legislation to constitutions. And as states revise constitutions and legislation, many are explicitly recognizing the human right to water. And some are also recognizing the human right to sanitation. Such recognition needs to be translated into concrete reforms of existing frameworks that integrate human rights standards and principles. This requires a detailed assessment of existing legal and policy framework. For instance, in some cases, customary water rights may protect traditional water use by indigenous groups, whereas in other cases, they may disadvantage marginalized groups by reinforcing traditional power structures. The human rights framework does not prescribe which specific solutions state should choose, but whatever solutions are adopted must reflect human rights standards and principles. Similar considerations apply for decisions on funding, tariffs, and service provision. But we would need a complete workshop to discuss these issues in depth. Instead, I would like to highlight key human rights principles that must inform water and sanitation policy in practice. First, non-discrimination and equality are fundamental human rights norms that relate to all other human rights. Article 2 of the Social Covenant includes a broad guarantee of non-discrimination. More specifically, instruments such as the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, the International Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination, and the Convention of the Rights of the Child include protections for specific individuals and population groups. International human rights law recognizes prohibited grounds of discrimination, including race, color, sex, language, religion, political or other opinion, national or social origin, property, birth, and other status. This last term, other status, is particularly important and is understood to extend to other prohibited grounds of discrimination, such as age, health status, sexual orientation, gender identity, place of residence, and others. Regardless of the country or region, we see that particular groups and populations experience specific barriers to the realization of human rights, often because of discrimination. These include legal, administrative, economic, geographic, physical, linguistic, and cultural barriers. There are frequently legal barriers, for example, for people who do not have documents proving that they have the right to live where they are living. People who live in so-called informal settlements are often directly or indirectly excluded from service provision because they do not have security of tenure. Complicated administrative procedures to get a connection to water supply or sewerage may disproportionately burden those who do not have the necessary documentation or have low levels of education or literacy. High construction costs, connection charges, and tariffs present economic barriers to people living in poverty. Geographically, people living in rural areas or in informal settlements in urban areas are often the last to gain access to services. Persons with disabilities, children, older people, and others often face very concrete physical barriers because of the inappropriate design, such as limited space, facilities that require users to squat, or small doors. People belonging to minority language groups may not be able to get information or participate in meetings. They may not be able to read and understand warnings, such as notices informing people of the need to treat or boil their drinking water, or letters advising of disconnections or interruptions in water supply. Many individuals and groups experience deeply entrenched stigmatization and sociocultural barriers, for example, ethnic minorities or people experiencing homelessness. And gender cuts across and intersects with many of these barriers. Women and girls are often responsible for collecting water, where supply is inadequate, which creates a significant burden and constraint on their time. Female farmers might not be recognized as legitimate stakeholders in decisions on water management, especially where land tenure is precarious. And women's and girls' sanitation and menstruation needs are frequently ignored. Often people are confronted with multiple barriers simultaneously. For example, people living in informal settlements often face the cumulative challenges of object poverty, population density, contaminated environments, and the lack of formal land tenure, which all combine to limit their access to services. Human rights law requires states to address such barriers and the discriminatory impacts of laws, policies, and other measures with the aim of achieving substantive equality. States must take measures to reduce and ultimately eliminate conditions that cause and entrench inequalities. Equality relates to the equal enjoyment of human rights. And to achieve such equal enjoyment, states must accommodate and embrace difference between people. Human rights require making water and sanitation governance work for all people and targeting interventions to redress existing disadvantages. In taking any decisions on water and sanitation governance, participation, transparency and access to information are key human rights principles. They are instrumental in making sure that people's water and sanitation needs are met And without participation, projects are often unsustainable, for example, because they don't meet people's needs in terms of location and security requirements, or they ignore women's needs altogether. But beyond being of instrumental value, participation is also a right in itself. Article 25 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights guarantees the right to take part in the conduct of public affairs. And more recent human rights treaties, including CEDAW and CRC and the CRPD that I mentioned before, spell out more detailed guarantees of participation and address the challenges that particular individuals might face in taking part in participatory processes. States are obliged to ensure that participation is active, free, and meaningful. Opportunities must be provided for people to take part in decision-making on policies, programs, and activities on sanitation and water at all levels that have an impact on their lives. All stakeholders, and in particular the people concerned by decisions, must be given opportunities to participate. Such participation must go beyond information sharing and superficial consultation. It must provide opportunities to actually influence decisions. States must put into place mechanisms to ensure participation, in particular of those people whose voices are traditionally ignored, including people living in poverty, women, indigenous peoples, and ethnic minorities. They must avoid processes that are captured by a few well-established non-governmental organizations or local elites. Mechanisms for participation should reach out to people at all levels of society, taking into account constraints that might prevent them from attending. This would mean, for example, organizing meetings close to where people live or work in all relevant regions of the country, organizing meetings during hours when people are available, using local languages, organizing parent and child-friendly meetings, using organizations of which people are already members as platforms for undertaking such meetings, among many other channels. While certain aspects of decision-making require technical expertise, such inputs must always be balanced with the needs and preferences of people who are concerned by decisions, and they must recognize their experiential expertise and local knowledge. Ultimately, human rights are about accountability. States are accountable for meeting their obligations to realize human rights. Human rights are built on the notion that everyone everywhere is entitled to water and sanitation. It's a matter of rights, not charity. This requires institutional arrangements to ensure that states live up to their obligations. Where they fall short, various mechanisms need to be put in place to ensure accountability which must be accessible, affordable, timely, and effective. These include complaint mechanisms at different levels, such as service providers, regulators, or administrative bodies. They include national human rights institutions, parliamentary review committees, petition committees, and ultimately recourse to the courts and international human rights mechanisms. To conclude, the human rights to water and sanitation are part of international human rights law. They have gained significant attention over the last decade and entitle everyone to have access to safe, acceptable, and affordable sanitation and water services. The human rights framework does not prescribe what approaches states adopt in decisions on law and policies. But it does set significant parameters that are relevant at all levels. It requires that states prioritize basic human needs. It requires redressing disadvantages that marginalized individuals and groups experience, and it requires that decisions on law and policies are taken in a participatory manner. As such, integrating the human rights to sanitation and water into law, policy, and practice will help achieve results that benefit all people. Thank you so much.